todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guests today are Patty Quattro Erickson and Kristen Hilaire Glasgow, host of a new podcast called Rock and Roll Survivors. It covers Patty's career as a musician from the 60s right up to now. Patty was on this podcast last summer, but there is plenty more to talk about. So let's get her and Kristen on the line. Hi, Patty. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, hey. Good to hear you. Hi, Stacey. <laughs> I'm really glad to have you back, Patty. And now we get to talk a little bit about your new partnership with Kristen. And her dad, uh, Roy Silver, I understand, managed your band, Fanny, for a time. Um, but she was just a kid then. So can you talk about how the two of you became friends and collaborators and what led to the new podcast well actually Roy Silver was quite a mover and shaker in the Fanny days in LA and he was the only Fanny manager from its original signing with Warner Brothers all the way up through when we disbanded with Casablanca and he brought me to LA settled me in his cool garage apartment which is across <laughs> away from Kristen's bedroom so we you know she was in my apartment all the time and that happened at the start of the new incarnation of Fanny she was a very young kid and she lived through all of the Fanny days and we became pretty darn close during my time in Fanny Kristen and I uh, pretty much reconnected during the Fanny documentary. She had done a podcast on the earlier Fanny and their four albums, which were well done, but they hadn't broken through, you know, in a, like a mainline way on the charts. So I was real intrigued by Kristen's historical aesthetic to get the facts and the history fleshed out and right. She yeah. has a doctorate in history. It's her wheelhouse. <laughs> we spoke deeper during the film run and I find myself, I found myself appreciating 
her factual lens approach to telling a more rounded out story because some of it didn't make it into the movie and she was able to like put it in a bigger perspective all six of the fanny women which was i thought pretty important to be told so that interested me and, yeah and that we, is a massive undertaking it is it is because everybody has a legacy and we explored her podcast idea, but one shared goal that came out that was important to us is to dismantle all the BS. Who was first? Who was the earliest girl band? The first album, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it, it was just music to my historically inclined ears because there were so many talented female musicians back then. And we sort of wanted to dismantle, uh, you know, we always felt that women were made a novelty or tokenized, you know, all the female contributions back then. And it's better now, but still not, you know, all the way better. And the movie was so successful, we just wanted to round out the totality of the Fanny story. So here we are. Uh, there are a lot of musicians who host podcasts, but I really can't think of any who are women. So um, what else sets rock and roll survivors apart from the other podcasts? Well, from the feedback and the interest we're getting, it's taken off pretty good. There's this comfort and an ease that we're able to bring to the table because we discuss stories and history from our shared perspectives, what we shared. And Kristen has a huge insider perspective. She grew up in the music business in LA. And I have the same perspective in a different angle from my dad and the entire Quattro family being in the music business as well. So there is so much interesting history to come forth as we do the seasons and expand. Yeah, and I enjoy how the podcast is, it's short, but it's packed full of information. So it's not you know, yeah. you're sitting down to listen to a two-hour conversation or anything. It's in palatable, digestible pieces. Yes, very important to us to have it be spicy and fun and hot and easy to listen to and not too long. That was Kristen's idea. She's very good at this. Yes, Kristen, you are. <laughs> I, yeah, I have a question for you. I, I understand that when you were starting out that you uh, were in the entertainment industry from the artistic uh, standpoint as a singer, songwriter, an actor. Um, did you go into that because of your dad's or your family's influence or did you genuinely want to be a performer? I love the way you phrase that or ask that. Thank you. Um, I had no idea there was a world outside of showbiz. So that was just absolutely what was, what was going to happen for me. My mother was a very well-known actress and singer. She did a lot of sitcoms. Um, my father was a manager and producer. And I was this precocious kid who was surrounded by Fanny by the time I was three at the age of 19. In I was three in 1970. And I saw all of these ladies rocking out and performing, and I just knew I could do anything I wanted in showbiz. So it wasn't until later on that I got very disenchanted, speaking of rock and roll nightmares, with the industry in general, right. that I realized I wanted to go back to school and become a historian. I have my PhD in history from UCLA because I wanted to tell a larger historical story about either rock and roll or women, whatever whatever the conversation was, but to also be able to talk about it from a historical perspective. 
And that's why when Patty and I started this conversation a couple of years ago at the Outfest in Los Angeles for the documentary, Fanny, the Right to Rock, we realized that there's such a larger story to tell of Fanny the band. The fifth and final Fanny album was, you know, two singles about were hitting the charts in one year. That's a huge breakthrough. Casablanca Records and Neil Bogart's vision, my dad's vision with Neil Bogart. So it was a very exciting time. And I was I was disappointed that the documentary, of course, like you said, you would need eight hours to tell the history. Mm-hmm. But I was so I, it, I was disappointed that at least Patty and Bree and then even Cam Davis were not brought into it more because there is footage that could have been shown. So I always look at things like from an opportunity. And I said to Patty, great, let's tell the larger story. Let's put it into historical context. And not take the, or let me say that differently. Let's take eight hours to tell that history if need be. Let's take season one, season two, season three. It's, this is an oral history, whether it's Patty Quattro, whether it's the album Rock and Roll Survivors, whether it's Women in Rock, whether it's her family history in Detroit, this is just ripe for audiences out there to hear because these stories have to be told. These connections have to be understood because that was what rock and roll was back then. It was who you knew, who you, who you were playing with, who was on the liner notes, as Patty said. That was the fun, being a detective to read liner notes and to see all the clues that they put in there and who played with whom. So I just see this as an incredible opportunity. And the name of the podcast, Rock and Roll Survivors Podcast, obviously speaks to the fifth and final Fanny album, but it also speaks to a larger audience and community of survivors who made it in rock and roll. It does. And you're right. We do need to look back at the foundation for the women who paved the way for people like this who are earning bazillions of dollars now. And, you know, without <laughs> bands like Fanny, uh, you know, we may not have this representation now that we do. And also you mentioned the liner notes and how much fun it is to look at all that. And the music industry has changed so much now that, um, you know, you download a, a a song from iTunes and you don't have that information who played on the track or anything or who produced it. It's a big deal to go and get the album and read the notes and all the stuff. I miss that about that era, you know, that we don't have the album cover stuff and all that. Yeah, that yeah. I just watched a really yeah. interesting documentary on Netflix called Squaring the Circle about hypnosis, the album cover designers. Yeah. And it was such a... Uh, artistic uh, and visually arresting time that we don't really have now. Exactly. We're reduced to thumbnails. (laughs) Exactly. Well, one of it, well, in an upcoming episode, Patty and I do go through the back of the album cover and discuss all the people that are thanked on there. Not all of them. We couldn't get to all of them, but highlighting some key figures and why these people were thanked. And again, the connections between the band members or who my dad wanted to thank there's an interesting anecdote in there where we, Patty and I briefly mentioned the name Jan Wenner. And this was before the controversy. Oh. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but one of, so you, you will see that we just say his name and then we don't say anything after that because again, it hadn't happened yet. However, I have a very, very specific and very vivid memory that Jan Wenner was thanked on there by my dad as a way to schmooze him, if you will, or woo him to get to pay attention to Fanny because Rolling Stone didn't want to pay attention to Fanny. Cream Magazine did and us did, but Rolling Stone did not want to, which is actually, if you think about 
the controversy that just happened with Jan Wenner, it's interesting to think about that. They didn't see female bands as anything other than a novelty. So my dad's inclusion of Jan Wenner on the liner notes, again, was a way to thank him ahead of time, like, hey, let's make this happen. So liner notes were also, you know, not love notes, but, you know, schmooze notes. To <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, it, it reminds me of, um, I, I recently read a book about Jan Wenner. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was really thoroughly researched. And the writer, I think, went in with his blessing, but he uncovered so many things that the mm. <laughs> the book turned out to be not exactly what Jan Wenner was hoping for. And as you mentioned, women in Rolling Stone, there was a piece on Joni Mitchell that was about all the guys that she had slept with and not about her music. And you know, it makes you think like, well, they wouldn't have done that with a male musician. So exactly. no, and they did Joni Mitchell. And then, I mean, they finally did a, a heavy rocker when they put Susie on the cover. I mean, it was like, Jan, I can't believe you put her on there. You know, it, it, they just didn't do a lot of the women. No, you're right. Yeah. I think that was societal pressure. I don't think he necessarily wanted to. I think that was Probably again, not. another form of tokenization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that is a great cover, though. It's iconic. I love it. Well, I want to, yeah, talk a little bit more, Kristen, about your uh, background in the scholarly world. Um, I read an interesting piece that you wrote called From Hollywood to Academia, um, in which you say that the two fields are similar in terms of sexism. So for lack of a better word, was that a surprise to you when you made that shift in your career and found kind of the same uh, treatment? It was such a shock to me. I thought I was leaving for lack of a better word, this cesspool, this industry, this Hollywood industry, where it didn't matter if you were talented or if you weren't talented. It's who you knew, who you possibly slept with. It just, there was no rhyme or reason to the industry to me at a certain point. And it just, I, I couldn't justify my being it anymore. So I went into academia, but of course I had to start off going to community college. But what I realized in this pursuit of an education was, oh, you can study really hard, and then you get an A and your GPA helps you continue in your career. And it was this foreign concept to me that you could work really hard and then achieve something as mm -hmm. opposed to taking acting classes, going into a casting director and I look like her sister that she's not speaking to anymore. And so I don't get the part. Exactly. But what, what shocked me about the similarities was it's a very tiny community it is very still white male dominated for the most part. The few women in the academic world had to fight really hard to get in there. They're st still seen as tokens. And even putting together, this is so nerdy, but putting together a dissertation committee. It's like asking people to be an agent or a producer on your album. And there's all this tension, like, would you please represent me? And then they do. And then it's just, it was so similar. And at a certain point I saw, and this was my own experience as well, but I saw with a lot of women that if you didn't play what I call the game, you didn't act a little bit dumber, or you didn't defer to, let's say the male academics, they labeled you as crazy or difficult to work with. And we hear those words in Hollywood a lot when women stand up for themselves. You know, yes. think of think of an early Barbara Streisand. She's difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. But but so Martin Scorsese, he's brilliant and he can take 18 hours to light one scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. So <laughs> where I saw the similarities. And again, within academia, there was no rhyme or reason to who got a tenure track position. 
if they, you know, if the committee member thought you were not who they wanted you to be, they could write a letter that's code for not taking you into the next level. So it was eye-opening for me. It was very eye-opening for me. I loved writing that article, by the way. It was great fun. It's a terrific read. Um, which website is it on so people can read it? I don't know if the website's there anymore, but it's um, it was originally published on an online place called the Activist History Review, all one word. And But the t if you Google m me, Kristen Glasgow, and you Google from Hollywood to academia, it comes up. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely worth the read. Um, I learned a lot from it, too. <laughs> Thanks. I have been listening to your podcast, and I'm loving it. Um, Patty, you talk about Mountain on episode four. And um, I had written about Felix Pepillardi uh, of Mountain being fatally shot, which, of course, is covered in Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories because it's one of the more shocking tales. But I didn't even yeah. know about it. I mean, it's not people don't really remember it um, nowadays, like we remember, say, the shooting of John Lennon or somebody like that. But yeah. is I feel like they're unfairly forgotten. Um, I think they were a really great band and and uh, innovators in many ways. So can you talk about your connection to the band Mountain and how you met them and did you perform with them? We performed with them a few times because my brother did a lot of festivals and, and Mountain played the, the ballrooms in Detroit and stuff. So we had a lot of interaction with them. They were a huge influence on me and our band Cradle. And we're going to be discussing them through the season, definitely. Oh, good. Uh, the stories, I mean, your story was very well done. Uh, I just read it last night and you got so many details in there. I always heard from Leslie. He's the one that really, uh, he just felt he had to, when we would meet in later years and stuff, he was like, he never got over it. It gutted him. He got, he always said she had so many stories. She said so much shit, you know, different, different angles of it. And she only got the two years she got out, but he just, he couldn't believe it. They had a very open marriage, as you said in your article. Uh -huh. uh, he was a small guy. He was slim. Uh, he was brilliant, produced, multi you know, instrumental. He had a crush on Susie, I remember, and they got along <laughs> real good. You know, nothing came of it, but but they were they were tight. You know, whenever we'd meet, they would talk bass stuff and music and whatever. Uh -huh. And we just had, and we had, God, we had them over for pasta dinners. We played hide and seek. I mean, who does that? Who plays hide and seek with a band? Stacy, I have to laugh at this because Patty and I shared this on one of the episodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when Patty said we played hide and seek with Mountain, I, of course, having grown up in L.A. in the music <laughs> industry, said to her, like, is that a euphemism? Is that code for we fooled around? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> she was like, oh, we actually really played hide and seek. They were so supportive of us. We shared the same manager. Bud Prager was his manager and my manager. Um, so, you know, we had a lot of interaction. I love Pretty it. Yeah, yeah, I think that you're right, you know, when you say how, um, how brilliant Felix was that he's really his name, really, I think if you say it to a lot of people, unless they're diehard, uh, early rock fans, it wouldn't be remembered anymore. But he did so many things, um, including you're right. you're and right. graphic yeah. and music. 
producing. Yeah, it's oh, a great loss. Terrific. Yeah. And his violin bass. Oh my God, the sound he would get on stage. Oh, hmm. just they would start that cowbell and it would just slam me to the wall, you know, for Mississippi Queen. Oh, what a sound they had. Yeah, I, I was talking to um, Mark Farner on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yes, and we were talking about the lost art of the cowbell. <laughs> we don't hear oh, it anymore. You know, Mark and I did a show about uh, maybe a decade ago. No, a, I didn't. Yes, it was that um, the guitarist, Dick Wagner, right? Uh-huh. From uh, little. Alice and different bands he played and he was an incredible guitarist and he had this uh thing for the children Mark came and did the show I came in Susie came in we all did a song on stage oh my god we had the best time and Mark filled me in on his whole story with Grand Funk which I'm sure he told you <laughs> a bit yes, yes. story wow right. What a story. I know. Um, so sad, man. Uh, it, it <laughs> and is. he was the talent. He was the one, you know? Yeah, That's he wrote. Me out. Yeah, he, he, well, co-wrote, at least, um, were an American band and gave credit to, I believe, the drummer, Soul Credit, and <laughs> now that yeah, song's yeah, made millions. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a lot of he, stories he, like that. He was um, not really on top of it back then. They took advantage of him. I mean, he, he went through the whole thing, but man. And his son owns a restaurant right here in Austin. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah Mark anyway, is a great he's a guy. He's a great guy. I love Mark. Yeah. I uh, met him when I interviewed him for my documentary about the ventures. And he's just such a genuine, enthusiastic, open, nice person. And, you know, a lot of people might be bitter after what happened to him, but he's not, which is really great to see. He doesn't go there. He stays in the light. I love that about him. Absolutely. Good guy. Yeah. Well, Kristen, I want to get back to your dad's famous clients because we love to talk about celebrity. Um, <laughs> who were some of your dad's other clients? And do you have any fun or funny stories to share about growing up in that unique world? It was very unique. Um, my father started off in New York. I was born and raised in L.A., and his first huge client, and this used to hold a lot more cachet than it does today, was Bill Cosby. And he literally started Bill Cosby. The two of them went on the road together and started his career. And then my dad came out to Beverly Hills and started a management company, Campbell Silver Cosby, along with Bill Cosby. Uh -huh. And that's when they did I Spy together. It was the first integrated series. So all of these great, and then my dad managed Joan Rivers and then Cass Elliott from the Mamas and the Papas. And then at one point, Jackson Brown, Fanny, of course, Tiny Tim. So my, my, there's, a, I grew up with nothing but celebrities at my dad's house and hanging out with these people. So to me, they're just stories, not necessarily unique stories, but I do have one. Patty and I were laughing about this because Patty has a very special friendship with none other than Roger Daltrey from The Who. Okay. And I remember touring with my dad in the UK with Fanny. This was the first incarnation of Fanny. So I'm maybe five years old, five and a half. I have a very long and vivid memory. Wow, <laughs> this yeah. And so we were backstage. Uh, Fanny was performing 
And Roger Dolce was in the wings backstage watching Fanny. So for those who have not been in the wings, you're looking sideways to the stage. So I was back there with my dad looking at Fanny and Fanny got a standing ovation and they wanted an encore. So this really attractive guy who I didn't know who he was. I mean, again, I'm like six, this blonde curly haired guy wearing denim jeans, uh, denim overalls, no shoes and no shirt underneath picks me up, puts me on his shoulders. So I'm facing forward and he walks out on the stage and the audience goes nuts. And they're looking up and they're pointing and going, Oh, and they're screaming. Well, it was Roger Daltrey. Oh my and- gosh. <laughs> So it's funny how Patty and I are so connected on so many levels. So that was a really, really, really fun story. And then the other connection that we have, Patty and I have, is our David Bowie uh, connection, because Bowie was really into the fifth Fanny incarnation, including costume input and all of that. And I remember David Bowie, my dad, Gene Millington, my dad was with Gene, a Fanny, the bass player at that point. Mm-hmm. And I believe I believe, Patty, you were there. And we were at the Rainbow Bar and Grill next door to the Roxy where Rocky Horror Show was playing nightly with Tim Curry. And I remember even the feeling of David Bowie wearing this almost like Little House on the Prairie cotton dress that was up up, up to his neck and then all the way to the floor. And I remember I would use his dress to climb down underneath the booths so that I didn't have to listen to this adult chatter and I could just have some quiet. So those are just some funny. (laughs) That's funny. Oh my gosh. Patty, you and Christian are obviously having a lot of fun on the podcast, getting in depth on the pleasure seekers, cradle, fanny, and the music business in the in the uh, classic rock era. What I really enjoyed is listening to Kristen read some of the concert reviews and some of the old write-ups. And I'm wondering if anything that she's uncovered has sort of surprised you or moved you. Oh, a lot of it. Um, I mean, that was why I wanted to work with Kristen. I am the archives. I was juiced up on being able to work with her lens and how she wanted to flesh it out. And there was a lot that surprised and moved me as we talked. I was so reminded of Nikki's talent and working with her in those days. You know, I keep everything. So I got to dig up all the press, you know, with our tours when I played with Nikki and we had Jean and me and Nikki and Brie. It was so validating and surprising and moving decades later to reread and reminded of how well we were received back in that time. We were definitely not secondary to the earlier Fanny. If anything, they had gone the limit on Warner Brothers and then broke up. And then in one short year, we come along with two of the highest charted singles. And both Gene and Nikki were, they were very vocal in the press, in the excitement of a new direction with two new members. So it was a very cool thing to read the trajectory of what the band had experienced, very warm and positive. Uh, like Robert Hilburn, you know, the LA Times guy, he had been so excited by the new direction. He said with the member changes, their full tilt rock and roll and the earlier band was a sweet band. And then another press said they were too prissy, the early one. I mean, I don't agree, but, you know, I thought they were a good working band. Uh, But they said they were too prissy and that the new members added some strength and authoritative, you know, they were very authoritative. So we had a lot of supportive press articles on the album and the live performances. And the other thing that surprised me and is wonderful 
is to hear the remixes that my engineer, Nick Langham of Legato Sound Designs did. They sound great. And, we're, and those are in the podcast. And we've also gotten use of the TV clips, which will be coming, that weren't in the movie. We have four of them, and there's six of them or eight of them out there. And that's exciting. So there's a lot of fun ahead, things that haven't come out that we'll be able to use. So that's cool. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about that. And um, you mentioned Robert Hilburn, who was a pretty tough critic. So that's a really great um, high note of praise from him. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, we're talking about good stuff, but you know, this is the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. So I'd love to hear from each of you uh, what your own personal rock and roll nightmare might be. Well, Stacey, to be honest, Patty and I were talking about this because we both did grow up in our own version of rock and roll, Patty in Detroit, me in LA. So I jokingly said, well, pick a decade. I'm 56 years old. Pick one. (laughs) I can Uh give the story from it. (laughs) But I think the one story that, and I spoke about this in the article that you and I talked about from um, Hollywood to Academia, that because I was my dad's daughter and I knew the sleaze, if you will, behind the scenes, I got very creative and very good at escaping any kind of misogyny or sexism or being kind of hit on because I just wasn't into that. I was way too straight for that. But there was a moment where I was about to be signed with a manager And I went to his house. We were listening to my demo tape. He was talking about cover songs I potentially would do. And he said to me, there is a producer who just flew in. And I don't remember the details, but just flew in from New York. And he's at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And why don't you go over there at four o'clock and see him? And I knew exactly what he meant. And that nightmare for me was the moment where I thought, oh, my God, this is so real. This is so now in my face. I have to make a decision. And I was so scared and my heart was pounding. And I said, I I didn't think I could do it. And I remember he kicked the chair behind him in such anger and said, in all seriousness, do you want to have a fucking career like Bonnie Raitt and take 20 years to make it? And I had this moment where I thought, oh, please let me be talented enough like Bonnie Raitt to have a career. But that was my nightmare moment. And that was also the moment where I thought, I'm out, I'm done and seen. And that's when I decided to go back to school, community college. That's a story that all too many women have been through. And it is a a real rock and roll nightmare. And Patty, you had a funny story, a funny rock and roll nightmare about, uh, I believe it was Chuck Berry in the last episode, but I know you have more. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, Kristen and I meet being straight. I always call it my third eye. Here I am from a Catholic family being dropped into rock and roll because it was the family biz and we were straight. You know, at least I never did anything. I just, it it scared me. So I did the rock and the other stuff, but (laughs) none of the drugs, not none of them. But you know what I remember when I look back, bands are so tough and I'm older with wisdom and the memories and it's like a family. I can't imagine my nightmare this is stupid but it's funny I can't imagine ever having to go back to those very young days of finding your place within a band I I mean from Detroit to LA what I'm mainlining right and fitting in with your young egos and the constant issues and all the stuff that goes on in a band when you're trying to make your way And I loved my ride. You know, I enjoyed the whole damn thing, but I would never want to revisit 
the tough times of being in a band and sorting through all that shit that would happen among members and stuff. And we had a pretty mild one in the incarnation I was in, but there's just always stuff, you know, it's hard. A lot of angst, but I imagine that yeah. is good for songwriting, <laughs> right? Yes, you know, oh, I wrote that line. Oh, I did <laughs> on that song. I'll just blah, 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 you know, leave it out. You know, just play, have fun, enjoy. So yeah. I wouldn't want to go back to that shit. Gotcha. Well, um, you mentioned that you have some new clips coming up. So we, I know what we can look forward to in some of the future podcasts. But do you have a favorite episode uh, that's already aired? Which one would you recommend people start with? Do you want can they dive in anywhere or how does that uh, work? You know, this is an oral history. It really is. We're starting with Fanny and it goes backwards in time to where we get to the Quattro legacy and everything. And there'll be other guests and stuff. And it's, it's gaining momentum every time. I mean, when we get to the Quattro, which is season two, the stories, they're endless. They're endless and they're hilarious and dramatic and fun. So it's gaining momentum. I don't have a favorite because so many stories happened back then too. You know, we're trying to start with the the immediate one that the film was out, which is Fanny. And then uh-huh. we go back and take a deep dive next season into Pleasure Seekers and Cradle. Uh, Kristen, do you have a fave so far? Well, I actually just wanted to pick up on what you said, Patty, because my approach, um, and Stacey, you said this earlier as well. I each episode is less than 30 minutes long. And I wanted the story to unfold like an oral history, but I'm also looking at this having it unfold the way an album used to unfold. Why did side A start with this song? And why did side A end with that song? And the songs in between and turning it over to side B. And so each episode that Patty and I talk about, sure, you could start, you could go to anyone and you would enjoy it. But there is an unfolding of the dynamic that Patty and I have, our relationship, why we came together to tell the story, how Patty is talking about Fanny. And again, making this larger history of women in rock and Fanny in general. So it's not necessarily a favorite for me. It's that I get excited for each one to come out for people to hear more. Yeah, we have something coming that hasn't been heard. uh, The rock opera. Yep. That's going to be a big deal. It has not been heard. It's never been heard. And also just to underscore what Patty said about her her engineer, that... The the music that you're hearing on the podcast, it's the only place you're hearing the Rock and Roll Survivors album remixes, which sound almost even better than the record at the time. They've been remixed in the way they should have been heard. And they are so dynamic and so fresh and alive. And I can't wait for the audience to hear them because they're they're jaw-dropping. It's exactly why David Bowie said about Fanny, revivify Fanny and my work will be done because he considered... Fanny, one of the great American rock and roll bands, bar none. Yes, and I think your podcast is going to bring Fanny back into the spotlight, as did the documentary, so people are becoming more aware. But I do love the larger story around Fanny that you are bringing to light. And um, so where can folks find 
your podcast, Rock and Roll Survivors? Right now we have our website. So it's www.rockandroll, so R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L, survivorspodcast.com. Must include the podcast because otherwise you're right. to the album. Um, but we are now on all podcast platforms. So Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find us there. And if you want to, and you're on Facebook, we do have a Facebook page and I'm marketing everything for us. So I'm the voice behind it. So feel free to stop in and say hello so I can chat with anybody who has questions. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Patty and Kristen. I really appreciate the opportunity to look more into your creative processes and your collaboration and congratulations. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. This has been a joy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you're welcome back anytime. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening.